Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. There was a time before COVID that I only knew how to do podcasts if the guest was in my home sitting across the table from me. And I'm not a big fan of COVID, but one of the things it taught me is to do Zoom podcasts and bring in somebody via Zoom. And this is um, one of those podcasts. My guest is joining us from New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas Swain. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's an absolute privilege for me. And tell us how to say and spell your last name. Oh, it's Swain. S-W-A-I-N. Um, and I have a missionary companion who I've actually made probably the most perfect joke I've ever heard. Um, I served in the Caribbean and um, I remember we went and we were passing one of these jewellery stores and there was a beautiful, very large set of black pearls. And I remember saying to him, gosh, they're, they're really stunning. And he just looked at them, looked at me and went, oh, don't cast your pearls before Swain. <laughs> that is pretty good. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I never forgot that. Um, listeners, this will be, I think, one of our of a really good podcast. Um, Thomas is going to share his story as a gay ladder to saint. That's not too unusual. Perhaps maybe what's a little more unusual is Thomas is sharing this story at age 37. Um, he's been out for publicly for just three months, out to friends and family for, you know, several years. Um, doing this podcast is probably the right time to do this in Thomas's story. And our joint prayers, this will help you, especially you younger LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Thomas has been on this road for a while, and maybe some of the things he shares will help you. Also, if you're an ally or family member, our prayers, this will also help you. Um, I'll first give you an overview of the story Thomas is going to share. So this is like the 40,000-foot level, and then I'll kind of sign off and let Thomas share his story. Um, he grew up in the UK, um, lived there for 18 years. His parents joined the church in Liverpool, in the areas around Liverpool, probably in the 70s. I served in Liverpool in 1980, your parents were not married then, but single people. So who knows? Maybe I crossed paths with your parents at some point in Liverpool. I love that city. And then Thomas's parents um, moved to New Zealand. And Thomas has lived in New Zealand for 17 years. He's um, served a mission in the West Indies from 2006 to 2008. He worked at the MTC in New Zealand for five years. He created a blog in 2013 called missiongeek.net. It doesn't exist anymore, um, but I share that with you to let you know how committed Thomas is to missionary work and how much good he's done in our church. That blog had over 32,000 following. Then Thomas went to work for the church in their, public, their PSD publishing department as a producer for another several years, traveling around the Pacific. He was the executive producer on the church most successful youth theme video in 2020 um, called Go and Do with about 4 million views. And Thomas currently works in video content advertising. Thomas is heavily involved in FSYs and YSA conventions and has been very active. Um, and he'll talk more about where he is in the church um, at this point. He talks, and so I share all that, just I want um, to publicly thank Thomas for all the good he's done in our church, all the lives that are closer to Christ because of Thomas's work, not only on his mission, but really an extended period of time post-mission, at the same time trying to figure out his, 
thing you do is sexual orientation, but trying to make that work. And he'll talk about for a long time um, dating women. He talks about his strong testimony, the Savior and Heavenly Father, lots of spiritual experiences, a strong testimony of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. He's going to talk a little bit about where he is, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but he's going to church less often, and he does have a, a male partner that attends church with him. And he'll talk about how that's been part of a story that's recently come into his life. And and I, I want to just be clear, as I hear someone's story potentially shift a little bit, I, my love for them and appreciation for them doesn't shift. I just would say to Thomas and anybody, I'll walk with you on the road that you feel is best. And every story is different. And I don't look at this as a negative part of your life. I look at this as just you figuring out your next stage of life and and honor um, your continued um, decisions that you're making and the good you're continuing to do in society. And um, Thomas, one of the things he may share is just he has a supportive network um, that loves him without judgment. And he'll also talk maybe about his hopes for the future of our church, where everyone feels con- unconditional love and support. And he, I think he will share a poem that he's written recently. He's not a poem writer, but he has a wonderful poem that he'll share at some point in this podcast. Is that okay in it for an introduction, Thomas? It's more than kind. You can actually take some of those things back <laughs> if you like. It's it too kind. So... I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear. There's, we there's like, sirens going off. I'm in the city, but we like <laughs> sirens. So we've heard all sorts of background stuff. We haven't had an earthquake yet, so don't start oh. with the New Zealand earthquake. <laughs> um, don't tell me this is the part where you just turn it over to me. It is. So That's, you could start. What, what are you thinking? What were you thinking? Bringing me on. Um, I'm a I'm a loose cannon. Good. This is the right platform for a loose cannon. Oh, man. I feel like I'm being chucked out of the back of an airplane with no parachute. Um, uh, wow. Do I go from the beginning? Is that the best Yeah, best you could thing? talk about, I mean, at some point, I think our listeners are going to want to know when you realized you weren't straight and and yeah. and how you tried to navigate that during your mission, after your mission, and if you're oh, still yeah. trying to date women or you've given up on that and but there's also all these other stories around that, like your mission um, and all the church work you've done as you're navigating that. So it's you can go oh, yeah. kind of however you want to organize that. <laughs> Look, let's take it from absolutely right at the very beginning. Um, I knew that I was attracted to men um, when I was 11. Now, when I was 11, of course, there wasn't any sort of sexual attraction. There was no, you know, anything like that. But I went to a bit, of a bit of a precursor to the scouting program called, um, I think it was Cubs, I believe. And I was, I was 11, um, went to the local village hall. I lived in a idyllic, quaint little village in England, you can probably imagine. And uh, there, was, um, there was just there was someone there that I would, I looked over to and thought, oh, you know, that's, it's a nice person to look at. And I'd look away and I'd look back again. And um, again, there was nothing sexual, but I think, you know, I felt almost embarrassed at the reality that I was looking at someone and I wasn't really sure why. Um, over the years, it, I guess, became my little secret was, you know, if I saw someone attractive, I'd have a look at them, but I couldn't tell anyone. And I Definitely didn't want to make it obvious um, that I was looking at anyone. That was in, in the 90s. Um, and then um, got into 
high school and you know people are getting older growing and you know bodies are changing um and so you know things like sports you know you look over and think oh wow you know that's that's attractive um but again gosh if anyone saw me looking i'd be incredibly embarrassed and uh and i went to a school of a high school of about 1200 people and there was there was one openly gay person in in the mm. high school um, who was mocked terribly you know that he was a part of the theater group and had lots of female friends um and 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 of course i didn't connect or relate with that at all i wasn't gay no definitely not no no way um no labels uh and and then we moved um out here from England to New Zealand when I was 18. Um, and that was brilliant. Look, I'll just, I'll really, really quickly just, just give people a quick rundown. We'd never been here before. Uh, my parents felt very, very inspired to come here only for a year. Um, that was the idea. That was the plan. I mean, 17 years later, we're still here. Um, and when we arrived, uh, we took a van from the airport out to, I guess, uh, Look, if anyone here has watched Schitt's Creek, it wasn't a million miles away. Uh, a, a small town away from a small town. <laughs> and we took the van from the airport. Um, and what I didn't know at the time was that the road was being resealed. So it was currently just loose, uh, loose, loose dirt, gravel, rocks, all the rest of it. So when we got onto the road in our van... I didn't know that New Zealand had any sealed roads. Um, I thought they were all just <laughs> rocks and dust and whatever. Uh, and then we <laughs> made our way through uh, the south of Auckland, which is currently where I live now in Auckland, and we made our way through that southern part of Auckland. And again, no one had told me that it was what in New Zealand they call Inorganics Day. And that's the day where everyone can put their rubbish out on the road washing machines, sofas, whatever, and the council will come and pick it up for free. So we're on this kind of rubbly road and I'm looking out and there's just sofas and washing machines and broken, uh, you know, uh, washing lines. And, and it was a, a massive shock to flying from London. Um, and so that was, that was, that was the beginnings. That was the first hour of flying in, of course, it's very different than what I uh, saw when I first landed. Um, and things have uh, modernized enormously in the last 17 years. Um, and so I, I didn't have to worry about my sexual orientation when I arrived because I was preparing for my mission. And so for that kind of year, nine months um, after arriving, that was it. That was I, all I was doing was preparing for my mission, putting in my papers and off I off I was going on my mission. So there was no dating. There was no thinking about any of that. And that, that was nice because it felt like a, a blanket of protection, a bubble where I didn't have to think because I'm going on my mission and that all of that is just off, off the table, off the cards. Um, and then I went on my mission and again, brilliant because I'm in the MTC, I'm, I'm, I'm a missionary. You don't think about that stuff and I can just focus on teaching the gospel. Um, I mean, I'm still human. I was still able to see attractive things in the corner of my eye, whatever. Um, 
and uh, and that was fine. There was only one, probably one little trial on my mission, um, and I served my mission in the West Indies, so it's the Caribbean and some of South America. Um, uh, if you if anyone has been, it's uh, Saint Martin, Saint Lucia, um, Dominique. Dominica, Barbados, Trinidad, Martinique, Guadeloupe, St. Martin. And I was in the French-speaking islands. Um, and then there's uh, French Guyana, Suriname, and, and English-speaking Guyana in South America. And um, there was just one. I did, I did so well. I did so well, and I was so proud of how well I'd done. And then my companion in a new area takes me to um, a house where there's, there's an investigator who doesn't like to wear a shirt, and was was very model esque, <laughs> and uh, I I just I had to focus, you know, just look in their eyes, look away, don't look at anything else, and teach the gospel. Um, and every now and again, his dad would say, um, you know, put your shirt on. He was about nineteen, twenty, so our same age, and uh, and his dad would say, oh, put your shirt on, you know, and I'd think, thank goodness, put it on. <laughs> But you know, did did really well, um, I think, and um, then came back off my mission, and then um, it was kind of dating time, and you know, it, it was hard. I remember sitting. Um, my mission president is incredible. Love my mission president, um, and I remember sitting in the mission home on our way out for that final kind of shindig, that final hurrah, and he was talking about you know dating and engagement and rings and you know all that sort of stuff and I remember looking around that table and just feeling like look this applies to the other 11 elders around this table but I, this just doesn't apply to me I I, I wish it did I wish it did I, I in that moment there was nothing more than I that I wanted than to just feel as normal as everyone else felt and get as excited as they felt about the next stage of life um, and then, um, yeah, came back off my mission. Um, just a com comment, Thomas. Um, yeah, that was really brave of you actually to share those couple of experiences at 11 and even that experience, um, teaching, I, it, you're vulnerable and you're courageous. And I think it's good for other people that are LGBTQ to recognize that, yeah, that's what happens to me sometime. And that happened on my mission. And my feeling is, you know, that's just how you're wired. <laughs> um, even though yeah. you feel embarrassed and it's awkward, I think we need to normalize sexual orientation, just like a straight missionary would feel awkward around, you know, whatever, a female, um, not very dressed. I don't want to say women are in charge of guys' feelings because that's a whole other space, but um, straight elders are going to have some of the same awkwardness at times that you're having. So I think you just normalize that. And I think it's a normal thing. We need to normalize sexual orientation and be vulnerable enough to talk about it. And you lead with that. But I also love where you talked about how you felt around here. You've just given two years of your life. And it should be one. I remember President Ivory in our home in, Man, in his, I remember that experience and altering him outside of Manchester when he had that final interview. And I was just filled with hope that, you know, I'd accomplish this great thing and the next thing in my life was to find my wife and here you are sitting there on what could be just kind of the capstone moment of your life to date recognizing 
it's different for me than the rest of everybody else. And that's a tough spot to be in. So I'm glad you talked about that, but keep sharing your story. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll I, I tell you, the, the, I mean, the other part, of course, being a missionary is, um, you know, other missionaries are, are, are people, human, they're just human beings, they're just young, you know, kids, really. And so, you know, in the mission, there is that sort of, I'm writing to my girlfriend, and I'm waiting for my girlfriend, I'm going to get home and get married, and, you know, all of this. And that, that you know, is something that you you kind of feel like, oh, I'm I've, I've got to kind of join in with in a way. And I think, you know, towards, you know, the end of my mission, I think there was a sadness, a sadness for knowing that the protection, you know, the protection of, of, of that badge was, was going to go because that badge meant that I didn't have to think about this. Mm. It didn't have to be in, on my mind at all. Um, because I was a missionary. I, I wasn't, I had no sexuality as a missionary, <laughs> you know, you don't, you know, you don't express any of that. So you think, oh, okay. So when the badge came off, yeah, I, I felt particularly vulnerable. And it's interesting because I guess my next step um, was I felt I felt really, really prompted to go and work at the MTC. And, and you know, I realized that people might see that as me then putting myself into another safe area where I don't have to you know, really think about sexuality. But I was very hesitant to work at the MTC. I really didn't want to work there. Um, I, I had a, a probably not the best of, um, probably not, not the best of outlooks on, on being an MTC teacher. I thought it was brilliant for some people that came back off their missions that wanted to be MTC teachers. But for me personally, I thought, no, no, I've finished my mission and I need to get on with the rest of my life. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to be an eternal missionary uh, in that way. And I felt prompted three times, three times to go and apply to work at the NTC in New Zealand. Um, and I went, uh, and, and there wasn't um, a very positive reception. <laughs> I went and quite naively said, I, f- I feel like I've prompted to, I've been prompted to work here. And I, I got kind of met with a, that's what everyone says, put your CV on the pile. <laughs> so I put it on the pile and I called back and I called back and eventually I went back in uh, and, and uh, I said, look, I, I know I've put my CV on the pile weeks ago, but, you know, I really think I should work here. And then they found out that um, that I'd spoken French in my mission and they had a, a district of 12 Tahitians arriving in two weeks and they had no French speaking teacher. So wow. it worked out really well. Didn't plan on staying there very long. And five years later, I left. So I had the most incredible time working with, I think I calculated it was about 3,600 missionaries um, wow. and about uh, 350 from Tahiti over that time period. Um, I've never felt um, that I've ever had a job more meaningful uh, where I've made more of a difference than working with missionaries. Spiritual experiences all the time, absolutely all the time. But, that, but during those five years, Again, I didn't really have to front up to sexuality, particularly because I was working 60 odd hours a week, um, you know, at the missionary training center. And I was able to kind of throw myself into that, into that world. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. There were some very attractive missionaries that came through, but you were a teacher 
and you you're professional and you do your job and you know you treat everyone the same and um you know you you feel you also feel there's a there's a there's a veil of protection as well that you're able to to focus concentrate and do your job because it's not it's not a worldly environment you know you, you you're in this very spiritual place i think a lot of people would say it was kind of halfway between a chapel and a temple you know people come and go and and all the rest of it but you you've it's very special it's a very special place i remember translating for apostles and general authorities and just you know it's it's it is it's wonderful it's a wonderful wonderful part of the gospel and gosh to, i couldn't imagine what it would be like to have come back off my mission and not had that experience because it was as incredible as my mission but it was like mission 2.0 yeah and um, towards the end, um, I'd st- I, I think I went on dates. I went on a few dates because I remember that the uh, missionaries were absolutely riveted at the, at, 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 you know, the thought that an MTC teacher would go on a date after they'd teach a class and they'd get to hear about it the next day. They, they loved that. <laughs> That's awesome. And then I finished up at the MTC. Um, I finished up at the NTC and I think, you know, that's when I started missiongeek.net. I knew that I needed to create an online platform where I could inspire pre-missionaries to, to do a bit of preparation and to get a bit excited about learning about missions before they arrived at the MTC. Um, and I knew that online space in 2013 was, was where it was at. That's where young people were. And so, you know, there was, I don't know, 30 odd articles on there and, they were everything from um, do I go on a mission? Do I get married? Or, you know, um, gosh, there was missionary stories. Um, you know, a missionary who'd um, got uh, taken by a, a mafia gang out in Japan and a missionary who'd had, uh, you know, uh, he'd, he'd been in Africa and he'd got new... Um, malaria and he'd he'd almost died and there was there was always awesome stories and so you know 600,000 visitors came in and visited the website and it felt great you know it felt great to be able to continue doing something in that space um but yeah during all of this time my friends are getting married everybody's moving on with their lives everyone's meeting people a whole generation of YSA are on their next steps and, you know, I'm, I'm not. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, you just make friends with the next generation of YSA. <laughs> I was organising, I think by that point I'd organised uh, some YSA events. Um, you know, 500 people came out to this one and 700 people came out to that one. And, you know, that was really good fun too. Um, but, yeah, fundamentally, um, you know, I think by that point my younger brother had got married um which was amazing awesome brilliant i'm i'm really close with him and i was really happy for him I've never i've never felt jealous of other people and progressing as it were in their lives but you know you do watch from a distance you know and you you kind of you do i guess ask yourself questions around how are things going to look when i'm 50 and 60 and 70 and uh and then yeah then then i think that 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 was probably when things got much harder and i had to start confronting things myself um and i think at that point i'd made a decision that i was going to continue i was going to start 
more proactively dating women, um, that if I could date a woman, get married, that would all, it would all work out, that I would be accepted in the organisation that I was so connected to, and no one would have to, have to find out. I'd be okay, and I could play that role. And I, and I thought, you know, yep, that's what I'm going to do, and I was committed to it. And so dated lovely people, wonderful people. There's no one that I've dated that I, that I don't hold in really high esteem. They're honestly some of the best women, and I always felt awful, you know, breaking up with them. I didn't tell any of them about same-sex attraction until maybe the last one. Yeah. Um, And so it was difficult because I always knew that they knew there was something else, but I didn't tell them what it was. And I I think that was probably hard for them because it didn't make sense from a closure perspective to why I needed to move on. Um, Because of course I'd say, well, you know, it's just not working out for X amount of reasons. And I'm in marketing, so you can come up with heaps of reasons. Um, (laughs) But I wasn't able to share probably quite a large reason. (laughs) And, and yeah, and that was, that was tricky. Um, So that I can remember breaking up with, with one. And that was the first time there was some suicidal ideation, which um, was, I was driving across a bridge and it was the first time that I, I I felt like driving off the bridge was preferable to staying on the bridge. And when that had registered itself in my brain, um, I, I burst out into tears. I I'd never felt, I ever felt that before. Um, and yeah, that was, that was really hard. It's really hard to know that um, you're going to have a negative impact in someone else's life because of something you can't, explain uh you can't really explain um why and um and so then i always had this it was this dichotomy of i sh- you know i if i if i i need to date because if i don't date i can't find someone to marry but if i date i'm probably just gonna hurt people and so there was always that issue uh so i reluctantly would date in a way <laughs> um and i enjoyed first dates and second dates and third dates. And then if things progressed, you know, I got, you know, more anxious as it went on and the, the faster it went, the more anxious I got. And then if the M word ever came up, you know, I, I, you know, died inside. It was, it was, it was so, I was so far from ever being ready emotionally um, for marriage. Um, I, I knew that was a step I couldn't take, but I decided I couldn't take it because I just hadn't found the right person. And so I found lots of different people and no one was the right person. And, you know, I can definitely say it's not because they weren't amazing people. It's because I didn't have the capacity to do something that I felt was the right thing to do from a church perspective, but the wrong thing to do from everything inside me was saying that's, that's not going to work. That's, that's not how you're designed. The word that comes to my mind, first of all, I'm really moved with that section, is just your incredible integrity um, and your desire to do everything you could to make this work and uh, marry a woman. And I think this went on for a decade. Um, and I'm grateful you shared that story about would it just be easier to drive off the bridge and why you didn't but it was all about just 
your integrity and not wanting to hurt people and recognizing that you knew they were probably thinking, well, it's about me and something about me that's causing Thomas to pull away and you couldn't tell them the true reason and what a tough spot you were in. And you can't really talk to anybody about this. You don't have community of friends. You're not out to anybody. You can talk to God. And you probably did, but it's it's just an impossible spot to be in. And I'm sure your older self would go back to your younger self and give yourself a lot of love. <laughs> um, but I, the word I think is just integrity. You're trying to do the right thing here, Thomas. Um, you used an analogy that maybe you'll eventually, before we went live, that was powerful about the ball. You can share that at some point during the podcast, but that was an analogy no one's ever shared before with me. Oh, well, look, I'll share it now. It was it was an off-the-cuff. It's probably yeah. not one of my best, but <laughs> yeah, I think at the time, you know, everybody else is picking up these balls, is throw, throwing them, throwing them as far as they can, and, 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 you know, it feels like that's what they're supposed to do. And, you know, I can pick up the ball, <laughs> but I don't have the capacity to throw it. And you can pick it up and you can look at it and you can play with it, but you, you can't throw it. It's you just can't. And so what you do is you you go and you say, well, it's, it's obviously not me. It's the ball. I need to find another ball. <laughs> and there isn't there isn't a ball on the field that you can throw. But, you know, you've, you're on the field and uh, everyone else is throwing the balls. And that that's I think that's yeah, that's kind of how it felt. Just with all the desire in the world, you want to throw, um, but you're not designed to throw. That's how it, that's kind of how it felt. Um, Good job. I think, keep, keep sharing. You know, yeah, at the, at the time, I didn't know there was any such thing as any sort of gay community in the church. I had absolutely no idea. Um, I grew up believing I was the only gay in the entire church. It's, it's the only time it's happened to anybody. And if it is happened to anyone else, then they've done an amazing job at uh, getting married, having kids, and never telling anyone. Um, that for some reason I'm subpar and I'm not as good as the rest of them because they're so good at, at hiding it. Because of course, at the time, you know, in, in, in the kind of what, what would that have been 2010 to 15, um, you know, it was same sex attraction. It was a challenge. It was something to be overcome. It was a default to be cured. And it was, um, well, it was it was it was likened. I'd heard it likened to the the difficulty and plight of the widow uh, in the church. That you know, widows also struggle, and you know they have their challenges, and gay people have their challenges, and you know, and 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 so that's that's kind of how I internalized it. Was I've got to, I've just got to be stronger. I've just got to be better. You know, I'm I'm just not strong enough. Um, and I think that's. I then had probably maybe four, about four or five years where I, I didn't date anyone else. I'd get, I'd stopped dating anybody because I, I was tired of hurting people. And I just felt like, you know, uh, uh, we'd had some, we'd have some really, really good times and I connect really well with people and I enjoyed the company, but um, it was at the expense of, of hurting people. And I, I was tired of that. So I stopped. Um, yeah, I stopped. And when I look, yeah, when I look back now, um, I was really hard on myself. I was really hard on myself. And I think that's where 
I guess mental health started to take a bit of a dive and I started to internalize some probably harsh things about myself. I wasn't sympathetic to to gay people. Um, I was probably a little homophobic. I was, you know, that I wouldn't, I, I didn't have any gay friends. I didn't know anyone in the gay community. I, I wasn't going to go there. That was too dangerous. I had this mantra, you know, and this mantra was, if I do nothing, nothing can go wrong. And I think that's how it felt. It felt like, you know, I, I just need to do nothing. I need to be very, very careful to not go near anything that could possibly tempt or tarnish me in any way. Um, but that was impossible. It was impossible. You know, like so many people on this journey, you know, then I, very late in life, stumble across pornography online. And then that becomes my outlet. You know, I look back now and I was so harsh on myself. I was so harsh on myself. Um, you know, the, it, it pornography became the whipping tool. You look at some, you feel bad, you go to church, you say sorry, you go back home. Times are tough, feel lonely, depressed, sad. You look at some more, makes you feel worse. You go to church, you feel bad, you take the sacrament, you, you know, trying to constantly, just constantly clean yourself of expressing sexuality in any way, shape or form. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, that, that was difficult. Um, that was difficult. I like to stay reasonably positive, but that was that was hard because I couldn't share that with anybody, really, apart from Bishop. There's no one else that I trusted. By that point, I'd only told Bishop. That was it. No one else. And then, you know, then I get to about 30, um, 30, 31, and... Oh, it was just like this massive secret building up inside of me that was going to explode. I had to tell someone. I I was driving me crazy. And so I told, um, can I say names on the podcast? Or sure, no? please. Well, I told my really good friend who, uh, if people know me, they know I'm good friends with an Olympic athlete. She's awesome. She's my best friend. And um, she had been inactive and then come back to church. So I felt like I could tell her because she'd been a part of life and a part of the world and all the rest of it. So I thought, you know, if there's someone I can tell, it's her, because I don't think she'll judge me. And I can remember we're sitting in the car and we're driving up north. Um, her husband, a friend of mine as well, was coming up to meet us and another friend. There was about four of us who were going up for a little weekend away. And we, the two of us were driving in the car, chatting about all sorts. And I was so nervous. And I said, uh, I said, Valerie, I said, I've got something to tell you. She said, okay, okay. And she could tell it was quite serious. And of course, it took me forever to get it out. And I said, I... Um, I experience same-sex attraction. And she said to me, oh, she said, finally. She said, I've been waiting for you to tell me that since I met you. <laughs> and I said, gosh, you, you, you don't have to be so rude. It's not that obvious. 
<laughs> and uh, she's so supportive. She said, oh, she said, I don't care. I don't care what you are. She said, you're amazing. You're my friend. She said, I love you. Uh, she said, you know, I, I, I love you even more for telling me. And, you know, you can talk to me whenever you want to talk to me. And so she became my confidant in a way. She became my confidant for probably a couple of years before one Saturday morning I woke up. And I'd received an email and, um, oh, oh, I can still remember the feeling. It was awful. I'd received an email from my mother and the email was so well worded that she'd obviously poured over it for weeks. It looked like a lawyer had been over it because I couldn't possibly have read it in any way and taken any offense. It was simply a mother reaching out saying, I don't know if this is the case. But if you do experience same-sex attraction, we're here for you. We love you. Nothing's changed. And and she, I know a lot of gay people that have had a terrible experience with their parents. I've had a very, very good, very positive experience, but it was still incredibly awkward. <laughs> so I read this email and I remember closing my phone and, and, and just saying to myself, I can't deal with this. And so I just ignored it. I didn't respond. I didn't reply. I've got a good relationship with my parents and I, you know, saw them. I wasn't living at home, but I, I saw them, you know, every other week um, for months, probably three or four months before I thought, okay, I think I actually need to have this conversation with mum. And so we were, we were uh, driving back from, from I think a family meal or something. And I said, mum, do you want to come in the car with me? She said, yeah, sure. And, and we did. And I, 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 and I was very defensive. I was very defensive. I was so scared. I was so defensive. I said, mum, I'm going to tell you something but I don't want anything to change. I don't want any special prayers. I don't want you and dad to go to the temple about me. I don't want to become a, an issue. I don't want, uh, just, just, just hear it. And then we just move on. <laughs> and so I told her and, 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 and she was just very kind and she was very lovely. And, you know, um, but she said, when we got back to the house, she said, can you do me a favor? I said, I said, what? She said, can you tell dad? And that, and that was, that was, that was not, I hadn't even, I hadn't even crossed my mind, you know, that hadn't even crossed my mind. And my dad is a very nice, very loving, very kind person, but I never talked to him about anything like this. And I couldn't have, I couldn't have thought of anything worse. I'd seen, I'd seen the films. I'd seen it. What happens when you tell dad? So uh, I said to her, okay. And so I went to the house. I said, dad, um, do you want to come out on a quick drive? And, and I told dad and, you know, he was, he was, he was very good about it. Um, you know, different than mum, different than mum. And he said, look, if you told me 10 years ago, you probably would have got a very different reaction. But he said, I've, you know, evolved in my thinking and things have changed over the years. Um, I don't understand it. He's also a biochemist. So he then went on to talk to me about um, all of the estrogen and chemicals in the water and how that um, has an effect on people. And and so I just listened. (laughs) and I listened and, you know, oh, that's nice, Dad. That's nice. <laughs> but they've been incredibly supportive. They've been uh, absolutely really, really wonderful. Um, but I was scared to death to tell them. I mean, you know, to tell your parents at 31, 30, 32, 33, whatever it was. Um, that was that was particularly difficult. And then I just, I guess I slowly decided to tell very close friends. Um, of course, none of whom were overly surprised. Um, And 
you know, almost all of whom were very supportive. And, you know, there was there was obviously lots of people that um, gave me words of caution and, you know, be careful and you love the gospel, you love Christ, you love Jesus, and, you know, maybe don't tell people at church. And, you know, it's, it's lots of people with very well-meaning meaning advice. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I've come across various types of people at church, really supportive, people who I wouldn't think would be supportive, uh, who have been, uh, others who maybe have felt uncomfortable in a way that I didn't think they would. Um, and I think, you know, growing up in the 90s, I'd internalised that people with same-sex attraction were kind of sex deviants. Um, you know, they were very sex mad, that they probably weren't safe around children. I think there was definitely that sort of the church's scouting movement and we can't have gay leaders. And and I had internalised that too. I remember saying, yeah, I absolutely can't have gay scouting leaders because, you know, that's not safe. Um, and, of course, now I look back and think, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Statistically, I actually think it's probably more unsafe to have a married man with children uh, than it is to have a gay person. I that That's not been uh, my uh, that's not been my experience in the gay community at all. So, um, yeah, I, I, a lot of prejudice. I've had a lot of prejudices. Um, and then, then came, I guess, 33, probably 33, 34, were the years where I really started to look around me and I really started to see everyone else's marriages and children and family units and happiness in the gospel and place in the church and acceptance and love and, and validation for the lifestyles that they were leading being something that I missed, that I was missing out on. Um, and so then it was, it was never a massive question in my mind to, well, you know, because I'm gay, it means that all the other things that I felt at church are not true. I, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. That, that didn't make any sense to me. I'd had all those experiences. I, I had this strong testimony of the gospel. There's lots of parts of the gospel that were very, 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 very strong. They resonated very strongly with me. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, um, before my mission, I, I committed myself to reading four chapters of the Book of Mormon a day before I left on my mission. That was really hard. That was really hard. I never particularly had a massive desire to read the Book of Mormon before my mission. I read it in seminary and read it, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the stories are complicated. The, there's lots of characters, you know, the, the old English is tricky. And so, you know, a chapter, fine. Two, maybe four. Four was a challenge. <laughs> four was a challenge. And I can remember getting to the end of Alma, maybe just after Alma, and I was sitting in my parents' lounge and it was uh, middle of the day. I, I wasn't working. It was, it was deadly silent in the house. And I, I got to the end of that fourth chapter. I closed the book and I had the most incredible experience. I felt the spirit, the strongest I maybe have ever felt it in my life, resonate in every corner of that room. And I, I felt on fire. I, it was a just a it was an answer it was absolute answer to my prayers of I need to know this book is true before I go on my mission and I was able to take that with me on my mission um, and teach the people of South America and I was able to teach them about their stories and it was it was really awesome 
I felt that spirit really strongly with native uh, South American and Indian people. Oh, I felt it so strongly. And I, yeah, I needed that experience. So I wasn't going to throw away that divine heavenly experience that I'd had that was absolutely, uh, you know, you couldn't reason it out to be anything but a sign and a message from God because I had this sexuality that didn't fit in the church. It, it didn't seem right. I, I, I couldn't throw that away to accept this over here. But that's when massive amounts of overthinking started was around about 33. Yeah. Loads. And it put me into a pretty depressive state <laughs> and, and I would, you know, mask that very well, but I was deeply unhappy, deeply unhappy. And I felt that like there was something huge missing from my life, but I didn't feel I had permission to explore any of it. Um, and of course, salvation was was a massive concern it was a massive question how could I possibly ever make it home um something else that was on my mind you know and something that's been a pressure in my life is and I don't mind sharing this when I was born um I had a twin and that twin passed away at three months old so for for all of my life I've known that I've got a brother twin passed away you know three months and that that twin didn't need this earthly experience and I guess I've always felt connected to this person and so I've always known that if I don't make it home and if I don't live my life a certain way and if I don't keep commandments if I don't behave I'm not going to make it home he's made it home he's already ticked all the boxes you know there's no there's no trial for him he's not on the on the judgment he's not in the judgmenty life that we're in and so I've always felt like if I muck it up I'm never going to make it home and I'm never going to see him and that's that was really hard so that's that's been really difficult you know and how could I do that to my parents how could I not make it home and not be a, as a family with my parents when one of us has already made it um and so yeah around that time I was working for the church um in their publishing services department and and that was that was hard you know the church, church employment doesn't have or didn't have at the time any sort of protection for sexuality, no sort of, no one was out, no one in the building. Um, I think there are other people, but I, I don't know. Never asked. You don't ask. It is a don't ask, don't tell situation. And I felt vulnerable, felt very vulnerable. Everyone else is married. I was asked all the time, every day, you know, when are you getting married? Who are you getting married to? You know, come on, hurry up, get some kids. What's wrong with you? Um, probably the most unkind thing I've heard at church was um you know there's some sister somewhere you know crying every night into her pillow because you won't take her to the temple uh, that was too much for me that was too much for me that was really hard I've never forgotten that and um I just you know I just wanted to I just wanted to be in a place that supported me and that that place just didn't support me at all and uh and again, it was difficult because I had some great experiences working for PST, awesome experiences working with apostles and general authorities around the Pacific, doing some incredible work with incredible people. Um, and I think that the work they do there is awesome, but the diversity is limited, very limited. I wasn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't play the game. I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. And, and I think there was probably some people that felt uncomfortable about that. And look, if people didn't know that I was gay working there, I would be very surprised. 
but you couldn't bring it up. You couldn't talk about it. And the pressure was massive. And so, yeah, I left church employment and um, went on to uh, contract. And then I worked for Ministry of Health. Um, And then I was now a part of Ministry of Health. uh, And the department that I was in had a CEO who was gay. And it was like night and day. I, 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 it was incredible. I was working there in an environment where people didn't care. And I was, hey, you're gay. I don't care. Cool. Awesome. CEO's gay. <laughs> there was an awesome, inclusive environment of people who were super positive and, and, and validating and wonderful and amazing. And it was, it was incredible. I was able to go to work and I could just be myself. I could 100% be myself. Uh, I couldn't at church, but I could at work. I'd never experienced that before. And no one, no one cared. No one cared. They, they all knew, they all knew I was gay and I was open with them. I was, I was, I was open with them before I was open with, with people at church. You know, I was open with strangers at work and I could just, oh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I felt it was so, so freeing. Um, And I think that that had a massive impact on me feeling like actually even though that I've surrounded myself in an, in an organization and environment where I'm fundamentally not normal and I don't fit and I feel shy and I feel vulnerable, that's not actually how I need to feel because over here at work, I feel great, free and happy. And, you know, I, no one asks me, are you getting married? What's going on? What's the next steps? Are you keeping the commandments? Do you have a temple recommend? No one cares. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing because I was just being accepted for me and who I am um, without any sort of conditions. Um, and and so it was around that time period that um, I met a less active member who uh, also experienced same-sex attraction. And we had, I don't know, probably about a year and a half of a non-sexual relationship that was a companionship, really. Um, and, and that was really amazing. He was, I guess the, you know, term would be, he was very straight acting. I I hate to use that term. I know some people don't like it. Um, but he wasn't, you wouldn't have known he was gay. There was no indication. So, so he could be my friend, just my friend. And that was really nice because I didn't have to, nobody asked me about him. We were just friends. I was helping him come back to church and we were friends. But we could be more than that together because we could be connected. And I felt like there was some sort of relationship, even if it wasn't physical. And, um, you know, I told my parents and, you know, my my nieces and nephews called him uncle. And and it was really nice. It, it felt normal in a way. Um, and I had companionship. It, I had somebody to, like, do the washing with and the laundry and, you know, make meals and, you know, go off and visit places and go to a restaurant and go to the cinema. And it was just nice. And I, and I never experienced that sort of um, peace in myself before, but he had a lot of underlying issues in himself. And some of those issues were connected to his childhood um, and the expectations put on him in his family to also not be gay, I guess, and not, not talk about that much more than was in mine. And so he created a bit of a 
other persona, other narrative. And I didn't quite know, I didn't quite know who he really was. Um, and I, I found out there was lots of things he'd lied about, uh, lots of parts of his life that he'd lied about because he didn't want to disappoint me. And he lied about because that's kind of just, I guess, the person that he was for people that he didn't know. And so finding out about all these lies was really, really hard. And I said to him, I said, look, I, I can't be with you. I'm just enabling this behavior. And it affected me enormously. And I don't want to get into all of the details, but some of them were just, they were really well-constructed lies that had lasted a long time. And he's not a bad person at all. He's just had a very, very, very difficult upbringing and a very difficult time. Um, during the time we were together, his, his mum had a couple of heart attacks and an aneurysm and ended up, you know, from what appeared normal and healthy to a vegetative state that she's still in now. So it was an incredible difficult time for him. And so then I, I dived into this um, kind of ultra depression of losing for the very first time someone that made me feel normal. And I feel so sorry for all my flatmates at the time. You know, I was a wreck. I was absolute wreck. One of them uh, was also is also LDS and gay and had his own journey he was on. Um, and he was kind of living life a little bit differently than I was, but we, you know, really good friends. And it was amazing to have him as a support. And, you know, I think it was really him that I guess kind of moved me to being more in a place where I felt like I was allowed to maybe go and find someone else because I never felt allowed. I never felt allowed to go and look for anybody or find anyone or have anyone for myself, have, have a partner. I never felt allowed. The first person in my life came by accident and I never felt I was proactively allowed to go and look. And I guess he kind of in a way gave me permission, you know, just to go out there and look. And so for the very first time, I actually put my face on a dating app looking for men. And I was petrified. I had convinced myself that somehow, you know, church leaders and my mum was going to, you know, find me. Um, and he reassured me that they're not on that app. <laughs> and uh, and I, I did. I felt scared to death. You know, my bio was basically, you know, um, interested in going on dates, getting to know people, no hanky panky, nothing more. You know, that was kind of the, the bio, you know, don't, don't hit me up for any, you know, quick time fun. I, that's not why I'm here. And, and so a lot of people did hit me up because they've never seen that sort of bio before. <laughs> they uh, weren't used to the, we'll go out on a picnic and walk along the beach and talk about life. Um, and so I got to know all these different people. Um, and eventually found uh, my my now partner who um, we were just looking for authentic companionship at the same time. Um, and he's Pentecostal. I'm Mormon. He hadn't been to church in a while. And, and he's been out with me to church over 100 times. Um, it's been really nice. And he's got a great testimony of the gospel, the saviour. And there's a thousand things that we connect with. I, I don't think that we really do see 
the Savior and God any differently at all. I think we, you know, Christians, we fundamentally see him the same. We, we call different names and we have different, you know, hymns and way of doing things, but we're so similar. We're all so similar. And I would love him to join the church, but it's incredibly awkward and difficult because we live together in the same house. And, you know, we started this relationship, you know, with very minimal physical intimacy and there's been a bit more over time and it's still something that is really awkward and I find is difficult and I find is um, not something that I can particularly, you know, enjoy or relax or be have in my life. I still feel very, I guess, conflicted in that, but the amount of peace and joy and love and purpose and he brings is innumerable. It's enormous. You know, it adds, it's like my life previously was black and white and now it's in color. And yeah, no one wants to watch black and white TV for their whole life. Um, And, you know, I'm, my, my health is better. My mental health is better. My relationship with my family and my friends is, is better. I'm, I'm just a better person. And that's, that's my grapplings. I go to church. I probably just do sacrament meeting. I'll be honest. I struggle with Sunday school. Um, but I love the gospel and I love the savior. And I think I've come to learn an enormous amount about God through these experiences that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. If I had stayed in that kind of state of, if I do nothing, nothing will go wrong. And I've got a really lovely bishop. As, as Bishop Roulette goes, I've got a lovely bishop. And there's some lovely members in my ward. Um, there's, there's, there's a family who have a gay son who's my friend. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to mention names, but they know who they are and they're lovely. Um, I have so much respect for anybody that is willing to just do a little bit of research and take a bit of time to understand what it's like for LGBTQ plus rainbow community at church. Um, I think there are a minority of members that don't, don't want to look at it, don't have the time for it and kind of weaponize the gospel to allow themselves that sort of room to not have to. And they say, well, I don't have to because it's wrong. I have, I have enormous respect. My, my dad's come a long way too. He's come a long way. Um, recently I went to their house and they've got a new missionary couple in their branch. And I wasn't there, but my friend was there and she said, your dad introduced your partner to the missionary couple as your partner. And the missionary couple either didn't hear him or didn't want to hear him. So he reiterated it again <laughs> and said, this is Tom's partner <laughs> and said partner quite loudly. <laughs> My, uh, uh, and I tell you, dad wouldn't have said that two years ago. He wouldn't have said that six months ago. So he's coming, he's coming along. Um, so yeah, I look, I think that, that you can't, you, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I've had, incredible experiences at church and I've learned so much and I it's helped me to grow and understand my theology of of the savior and I know that I shouldn't talk about this because you told me not to but I'm 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 not going to say where or when but there was a speaker 
that talked around about people's own truths and theologies on things. And I genuinely believe that we all have our own idea of God. We all do through our lived experience. And, you know, we, we rely on him differently and we understand him differently. There are times in my life where he's been very vocal and he's been a little chastising. There's times where he's been very loving and kind and accepting and absolutely, you know, comforting beyond. Um, and I've seen all these beautiful different sides of God that I've needed at different times in my life. And I think we, we have to allow each other to build our own theology of God. We have to. I think that the gospel is an enormously important place to learn how to connect with God. But I don't think it has a monopoly on who he is for us individually. I think we have to learn that ourselves. And I think there's a lot of people that are fearful. They're, they're, they're fearful to, to go out and ask him for themselves things that they would prefer just to ask leaders. They'd prefer to have someone just tell them what to do. And that's not possible for people with same-sex attraction, LGBTQ+, rainbow community. I, I, if I had, if I'd just gone to my state president and my bishop my entire life and said, right, what's the next step? I'd, I'd, I probably wouldn't be here because it's too limiting. They don't have enough information. It's not their fault. They don't experience this. It's a really hard thing for LGBTQ plus in the church because there is almost not one single priesthood leader, general authority or apostle that really, truly can connect with what they're going through because it's so removed and distant from where they're at through their lived experiences, which isn't their fault. And I tell that to members, I say, look, you don't have to listen to the whole of general conference. If there's a speaker that triggers you, don't listen to them. Listen to someone else. Because the reality is they, they don't have the sort of experience that you have. And so where they're coming from is a completely different space. In, in particular, they're not subject experts at this. Um, and what they're pulling from is probably some very old-fashioned, antiquated um, experience. You know, when, when a lot of the apostles uh, and general authorities were young, you know, this was very frowned upon, illegal in some places, and um, a part of society that wasn't accepted in mainstream Christianity at all. And so I'm very sympathetic towards that. And, uh, and I, I think that's where the community and the leaders need to compromise. And they need to come to the table, both humble, to listen to each other. Um, but I've got a lot of hope. I'm seeing massive changes, not in church doctrine, but in church culture over the last five years. And that's, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. We, like I said in my Instagram post, you know, changes in the temple, the church said, I quote, they said, well, for better racial diversification in the temple and an ongoing commitment to gender equality. I was like, great, finally, that's awesome. President Nelson in his recent talk talked about, you know, it being uh, I forget the phrasing he used, but, you know, displeasing to God that there was any sort of uh, division and any, any, any sort of attack on people based on, and he, he listed, you know, gender and um, ethnicity and, and, he, and he mentioned sexuality. It's the first time I can remember uh, a prophet 
talking, actually saying the word sexuality as a group of people who needed protecting. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. He's 90 something years old and he said sexuality in general conference. I love it. So that's kind of my journey in a nutshell. Um, yeah. And I think, um, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Ask me some really difficult questions. <laughs> well, I think on behalf of our listeners, um, first thing I want to say is thank you, Thomas, for this is really vulnerable, what you just did. Um, really vulnerable. And that's a sign to me of great spiritual and and maturity and mental maturity and just um your ability to talk about this journey um in a public way probably something you never imagined you would ever do and i think it's one of the finest moments of your life is you coming out broadly three months ago you coming out to friends and family you coming out to valerie i think that's her name in the car um and now being on this podcast and continue to talk about it um and Here's some notes I wrote down, listeners. I just recognized um, all the internalized homophobia that you didn't choose to have, but because of what you heard in society and what society said about gay people and all the narratives that you then obviously didn't want to be that. (laughs) And I think um, getting out of the internalized homophobia and getting that out of your system is a good thing and something that God can help you do, listener, if you've got some of that. Um, straight people need to get that out of them so they can better uh, support LGBTQ people. But I've seen a pattern a little bit with the younger people on the podcast. They get through that stage earlier. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. because they're any more courageous than you. I think you just recognize the content you grew up with in the 90s that they did, they missed. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I just recognize we're making progress and Younger people are able to get through that quicker because they're just not exposed to us. They're still, it's not easy. Um, I love that some of these phrases you've used, like, help me felt normal to talk about that first um, guy partner you had, who I don't even think was a romantic relationship, and just how your whole life um, you had not felt normal. I'm still back at your mission dinner on the last night of your mission, not feeling normal in what could have been and should have been one of your finest moments to feel normal and feel like full of hope and and understanding of all the good you did. Um, I love your phrase, peace in myself. You said some wonderful sort of phrases. I love that that's part of your journey um, to find peace in yourself and how that's been so hard to find, especially as you were, you know, in this decade plus of trying to date women. And I recognize then how you said, I'm not going to hurt. This is, this is sort of part of a beautiful love story, but it's painful for the personal sacrifice you made after you dated all those women for so long. I said, I'm not going to date anybody because I just don't want to hurt anybody. And here you are kind of sacrificing um, any future for you because you don't want to hurt anybody. And what a tough spot to be in. Um, I, I love. Um, what well, listeners, I share this principle sometimes. But President Nelson, I love the good things you shared about said about him. He talks about the gathering of Israel, and I think of that couple in the West Indies that you knocked on their door and helped them, and maybe some people in Liverpool back in 1980 that I helped. Skelmersdale was the suburb I served a lot in. 
Um, so I think of those people looking for the gospel, but I also think of LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I think of our own people and our responsibility to gather. So as I'm listening to Thomas's story, I'm struck with the, the work we have to do to help people like Thomas feel gathered. And, if, and you can kind of go back through Thomas's story and recognize all the things we could have said that would have helped Thomas feel a feeling of belonging, that he felt at work and that he could be himself. And I don't think that changes our doctrine just to be yourself. <laughs> and for Thomas to be gathered um, doesn't change our doctrine. But what happened at your work was kind of a, a little bit of gathering that occurred is there, were, there was representation of other LGBTQ people. They were in leadership. Um, you all seem to be working together for a a cause and every part about you was needed in that cause. And you could just be yourself and how healing that was for you. And that's sort of part of my vision of Zion listeners or gathering of Israel's our LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to feel gathered. And maybe some of that's happening in your ward. As you talk about a loving Bishop, um, you talk about an accepting ward, you're bringing your boyfriend to church. People would say, well, that's not exactly the doctrine, but my feeling is church is a place that everybody should feel welcome. Elder Uchtdorf talks about there should be no sign at the door that says your testimony needs to be this high to enter or this wide to be living a certain way. So the temple has a belief in behavior hurdle, but our congregations don't. And I think Christ felt, have everybody felt welcome. So I'm glad for the most part. And I recognize the courage it takes to continue to go to church, wondering you'll be received and what comments you might hear. And, and sometimes we need a bogeyman to, to drive our point home. And sometimes LGBTQ will become the bogeyman to sort of talk about the last days or Satan confusing his children. And I teach our doctrine listeners, but I teach it without emotion, um, just a fact-based discussion of our doctrine. I've shared this story before, but I don't want to get too sidetracked from Thomas' story, but since you've got me back in England, our mission president in 1980 felt our culture was too much versus the Church of England, and we were demonizing them in a way that kept us from taking the positive message of the restoration of the people of Northwest England. So he did something really radical. He held an all-mission conference in a Church of England, and the vicar spoke, and we felt the Spirit. No one joined the Church of England, but he humanized this group of people for us. And he taught us we could have a fact-based discussion about the difference between the Church of England without demonizing them. And our doctrine could stand on its own merits without a bogeyman. And, and it, we baptized, we were the top English-speaking baptizing mission in the whole church in the early 80s. And I think it's partly because of the culture he brought in. It was a holier, higher law. And so... I think politics can stand on its own merits. We don't need a bogeyman to drive home our position. That creates often fear that creates community. Um, sometimes he'll hear a church talk. You talked of one where we're sort of in, we're, yeah, in, in that narrative is the facts of our, of our doctrine, which I support and invite people to follow. But the fear-based, emotionally charged narrative divides us in an unhealthy way. And I don't think it's the way Jesus taught um, the <laughs> His ministry didn't do much of that, except maybe people that were in charge um, that marginalized people. So um, that's just some of my thoughts that some of you that are regular listeners have heard some of that. Now, what 
Thomas, um, uh, when I see someone sort of walking a less traditional path in the church, my old self would have said, well, you're on the slippery slope here, Thomas. My new self would say, I, I'm just going to let you write your story, Thomas. That's what we invite people to do. Write your story with Christ. Author your own story. And so I don't look at your story when you're teaching the MTC, when you're working for the church, you're doing all these as a valid story, and now it's less valid. I just, as a fellow Latter-day Saint, said, write your own story. What a perfect time in your life to write your own story. You've been on this road, Thomas, for a long time. You felt suicidal ideation as you almost drove off that bridge because of the pain of this situation. And now you're in a good spot. And I just walk with you as you write your own story. I love your father introducing your partner. I don't think he sold out our church doctrine to do that. He just honored our doctrine to love one another and support each other and, and preserve their family relationship. And everybody has their agency. And I recognize if we are just throwing bombs at you, living the life you live, you might get really angry and bitter and, and cut yourself off from um, our church or family because you need to just to preserve your mental health. But so I like that people are still putting their arms around you. And to me, that is honoring our doctrine. So I love you mentioning porn. We talk about it sometimes on that podcast. And I thought it was pretty brave. Um, porn listeners, you've heard me talk about this subject. Yeah, that's a sin, but I recognized in my YSA assignment, often it was more about what was at the bottom of the iceberg than porn. And if people could kind of figure out the bottom of the iceberg, um, often it was a way to connect, to deal with anxiety, distress, to escape from the reality of their life. And yeah, it wasn't the best coping mechanism and it's a sin, but often if people could put it in that context, and faith leaders helping somebody, they could get through that um, and really sort of address what was at the bottom of the iceberg. So I love you being honest with that segment of your story. Um, anyway, I know you've got a poem you want to share um, that you shared yeah, before we went that live. Right? And, um, and I want you to continue any, share any other thoughts. These podcasts don't have a hard stop time, so... I just want to make sure that you continue to share anything else that's on your mind or anything I've said that didn't quite sit well with you. Well, no, no, no. Everything you said sits great. Look, I, I'm not, I'm not going to speak for long. Um, I realize that, you know, listeners may tune out uh, and uh, click out if I just ramble on for another 20 minutes. So I'll keep it short. Um, but I just look, I guess to preface this poem, um, just to preface this poem, I, I think I just wanted to say that um, my understanding of, of God, my uh, level of compassion, empathy um, that I have for people has, has, has increased tenfold going through this journey that I've gone through. Um, that even though maybe five years ago, you know, I would have pled, pled to have this, this trial taken from me. I can see with a little bit of time now between those two points, the amount of growth that never would have occurred, never would have occurred any other way. Um, there's no way I'd have the same level of, of, of empathy and compassion for other people. But there's also no way that I'd ever understand how God feels about his children without feeling like someone who has, because of their sexuality, felt 
expelled from the group in a way. So it's been a very, very interesting journey. Um, I, you know, hand on my heart, I couldn't have said five, six years ago that I knew to what extent God loves his rainbow community. I, I, I couldn't, you know, but I can now. Um, and so that's what this poem is kind of based on. Um, I came to my computer a few days ago and I was supposed to be doing some work. Classic ADHD symptom <laughs> is you go and do something else. And I had this line pop into my head and I couldn't, couldn't get it out. And I thought, fine, I'll, I'll entertain the idea of this line. And so I did. And half an hour later, I'd written this poem. Now, I'm, I do write. I'm not a poet. I don't write my feelings and thoughts. I don't get them out on paper, as some people do, as some therapeutic way of, of, of coping with life. I, I just don't. <laughs> so it was very out of character for me to write a poem. But I did. And, I, and, I, and by the time I got to the end of it, I felt something. I felt like I'd learned something. I felt like my understanding or my understanding of the theology of God had increased based on what I'd written. And I was kind of a bit taken back by it. So I thought, look, I'm going to share it because I hope, look, if anyone can take anything from this and learn anything from it, I'd be so happy. Um, so I'll give it a read. Okay. <laughs> what do you think that God will say when he meets the trans, the bi and the gay? Will he feel that they have let him down with a misspent life out and about the town? Will he disapprove of the rainbow vibe, those high heel knights with the gold glitter tribe? Will he feel that they have failed him ever so, wasted their lives meant to learn and grow? Will disappointment be on his mind because they struggled with their given design? Will he shake his head because they have so failed to sentence them to be banished and jailed? Or may I suggest a different view? a most loving father who certainly knew. With eyes joy-filled, he's been waiting to say, there never really was any other way. No other narrative you've failed to enact, nothing you've missed because of something you lack. He knows the pain each sleepless night and hope and faith felt out of sight. And even when life hung by a thread, bitter thoughts filled with what can't be unsaid, He's heard each little tiny word, all judgments passed, every scorn inferred, careless questions asked. He'll reassure that he makes no mistakes, despite the constant mental dread and aches, and reaffirm, my children are all unique, the bold, the beautiful, and the meek. That this earth life was as much a test for those that feel they are the blessed, the plan was never to return unscathed through life all lived perfectly well behaved, but instead to increase our compassion for all these gifts from God earned fall after fall. To bear the burden of another's pain, to truly listen, let judgment abstain. To defend, to love, to walk with those, no matter the shoes, the bags, the clothes. The holy plan is done and firm set, divinely paid through his blood and sweat. Worry not, your home, now my child whom I love. Wipe away those tears. We have plenty of room up above. A mansion prepared for everyone here. The trans, bi and gay. It's not heaven without queer. Yeah. So, I, I yeah. I guess there's a lot of concepts, a lot of stuff in there. I felt like I'd got to know uh, again, another level of the love that our Heavenly Father has for that community um, writing that. 
and I've come a long way. And I'm, I think I can, for the very first time, I can say I'm grateful for this challenge in my life as hard as it's been, for everything that it's taught me and for everything that it's done to help me feel closer to the Saviour. Because for many a time in my life, there's been no one else to talk to and nowhere else to go than to just pray. And now my community is wider, filled with lots of different people from all different walks of life who have faith in God. And some of them, some of them are where I'm at. Some of them are at different places, different stations, different boats, different tracks. But the thing that we all have in common is that we've all got a trial that doesn't necessarily fit in the most I guess it doesn't fit in the church in a sexy way you know I always wanted a trial in something else you know give me a drug addiction or <laughs> give me <laughs> give me an anger management problem or just give me something else anything else that the church has got a pamphlet and a program for. Um, but actually I'm, I'm grateful for what I've learned to have to forge my own path to figure out how to keep the gospel in my life, but also to be true to the person that my heavenly father created. I love your That's poem. Me. I love the poem. I think of Corinthians. Paul's vision of the body of Christ and how consistent that is with the poem he wrote and how God, you know, I think our, my younger self would have thought there's some backstory that happened that ex something went haywire, so you're gay, and I can explain it with all the different theories, but my current self is this is who you are, Thomas, and it's a good thing. And nothing went awry here, and nothing's, it's part of God's needed beautiful diversity and you being who you are, the authentic Thomas Swain is a good thing. Um, I'm struck with, you know, you being this age and most of your life is probably still ahead of you. I'm looking at life expectancy tables. <laughs> I hope up, so. <laughs> and um, that would only put you in your early 70s. And I wonder if, you know, if your 75-year-old self um, would come on a podcast one day and say, you know, I actually feel like I help more people um, post coming out. Um, Cause, and my, and the best 35 years of my life are actually the 35 years that happened since coming out. And I say that in the context of 3,600 missionaries that, you know, you influenced at the New Zealand MTC um, all, all the good you've done in so many circles in our church and help people come into Christ and feel God's love and um, commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that, I think you could have just said, well, I'm, you couldn't have, you, you're kind of living with the paradox. I'm, I'm gay and I love the gospel and I'm, I'm holding on to both of those the best way I can. And there's no owner's manual written for that, as you've said, but there is in some ways it's personal revelation and your relationship with God and the Savior. But I just wonder, and maybe this is, I don't want to put pressure on you because it'll be a less formal way, but I think you'll continue 
to help people because that's part of your mission, Thomas, and and your vision for inclusivity and welcoming and all of God's children and your understanding of God's love for everybody. I just wonder, um, you'll look at the second half of your life and it's not quite halves because most of your life is still ahead of you. And that gives me hope for the world and for your mission. And I look at where, and the fact of you coming out makes all that possible. Um, So anyway, I think of those sort of things. I also think, I sometimes talk about um, this false dichotomy that to fully love and follow God, we have to stop loving some of his children. And I love that people generally are not doing that with you, your family, your ward members. Um, I just think um, one of the best ways we can show God um, our love and support for him is to love all of his children. I know as a parent, when other people love all of our children, that um, that brings us great joy. And often it's their help that lifts the burdens of our children. So I love this human family that I think at times can be really painful for our heavenly parents if we divide and, um, and the vitriol that President Nelson was trying to get us away from. But if we can come together, um, Zion to me is not sameness, but Zion is unity and love and support and helping everybody feel like they belong and are needed. And you're helping us do that, and your story moves us. So I invite listeners to act on your impressions you felt. I'm listening to Thomas's story. If you're LGBTQ, if you're an ally or a local leader, um, and I'm grateful for your courage, Thomas, to share your story. You're a good man, um, and I think you've walked this really difficult road as well as possible. And you're in a great spot, and the world's better with you here in it. And our and our faith community is better with the contributions you've made and the contributions you'll continue to give to make this world a better place. But I'll, that's all I'm going to say, listeners, I promise. I'm going to turn it to Thomas just to see if any his last thoughts. No, no, no. You need to end it quickly because everyone on the podcast is bored to death of me now. They just want to go. Um, <laughs> I've got two tiny things to say. And Good. one is, if you're LGBTQ+, if you're Rainbow Community, uh, the best thing that I've done is get a support network of people around me, people that are there for me. If I need to pick up the phone, discuss something, you know, have a chin wag. There's good days, there's hard days, there's amazing days, there's terrible days. That support network has been invaluable. And they don't have to be LG, LGBTQ plus people in that support network. They can be any, any walks of life people, just anyone that's there to support you develop that um, support network and anyone that's not LGBTQ plus in, in listening, just, just be offer to be that support person, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have to be formal, you know, just, just be open to, to helping and, and being a part of those people's lives. Because I believe that that is exactly what the savior would want us to do to bear one another's burdens that they may be, they may be light. I think there's a lot of people that feel very safe staying with the 99, not so comfortable with the one, um, but go, go after the one, you know, please, please go after the one. And I don't think that there are ones that are more deserving of help than the rainbow community in the church. I, I feel that they are the group that for the very first time, we potentially have the opportunity to keep a generation of rainbow community members in chapels. It's never happened before. There's never been a generation that we've had rainbow community people stay in in chapels. But I think this one, we have that opportunity. 
I believe personally that in years to come, we'll see, I love the word gathering. You've said gathering a lot. I love the word gathering. And I think in years to come, we will see the church make a, a, a massive special effort to gather those members when it's time, when it's politically possible, when it's going to happen. It should. I think it should be happening now, but it's not, but that's fine. We can do that. But I think the last thing that I'll say as well is, I think for a lot of my life, I've always thought to myself, if I can just get a letter to the right leader, things will change. If I can just get a letter to my stake president, to the Area 70, to the general authority, to the apostle, to the prophet, I can just talk with them, things will change. Um, But in fact, what I've come to learn is that things will change as every individual member makes an effort to do their best to be kind and loving like the Saviour would want them to be towards a vulnerable community of people who feel lost. That's how we will make change. And when that becomes generally accepted in the church that people feel loving and kind towards this community and we're able to get out of the divisive politics and all of the rest of things that people have grown up with, we will create an environment where leadership are allowed to, with open arms, be more kind and open and and honest around how we can include this community on a more formal level. I'm not saying doctrine is going to change, but I think we can all do our part. I love that. I love that because we can all control that. I love focusing on things that we can control and we can all in our local area of influence do what we can. And that was, that was a golden segment. So listeners, this is, I, in the, I'll put, if you're wondering how to find Thomas, I will um, put his Instagram and his Facebook in the show notes of the podcast. And I'll put this on my Instagram and Facebook. So you can DM Thomas um, if you want to talk to him further, but this is Richard Osler and Thomas Swain signing off from another, and we didn't have an earthquake in New Zealand signing off from another episode of listen, learn and love. (laughs) 